I'd ask you to please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we read our passage for this morning. Uh, we're continuing in, in Acts, and, uh, and this morning we'll be looking at Acts chapter 19, verses 11 to 41. Acts 19, 11 to 41. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil, priest, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt upon them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, so that many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. At that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be, even, be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged, were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together to the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. When Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were his friends, or friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make offense to the crowd. When they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis, and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. 
If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and the charges, or sorry, and there are proconsuls, so let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it should be settled in the regular assembly, for we really, are, we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. When he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of our Lord. May he write his eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Our great and glorious God, we praise you that we see your greatness in all of creation. We see your greatness over all things. Lord, I pray that those who are called according to your name would recognize your greatness and would bow before you in preference of, of all other false gods. Lord, we know that the, the gods of this world are nothing but idols. They are, they are mute. They are impotent idols that can do nothing. Yet, Lord, you are the omnipotent God. You are on your throne, ruling over all things and bringing all things to their appointed end. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to bring the knowledge of that fact into every and, and all of our circumstances in order that we might trust you and worship you and have a reverent fear of you no matter what happens in our lives. Because we know that the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior, died for our sins. And that through Christ we have been justified. We have been pronounced not guilty of our sin. We have been pronounced righteous before you, Almighty God. And you have adopted us as sons and daughters. And so, Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more for Christ's sake. Amen. Please be seated. The iron smith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into a figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, an idol, and he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half it I burned in the fire, I baked it bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, for he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Friends, Isaiah's prophecy against idolatry was a powerful exhortation against the influence of the idolatry among the nations. And it's a powerful exhortation against the influence of the idolatry of the nations today. And it is a powerful exhortation against the influence of idolatry in our nation. 
Idolatry is not just endemic to the South Pacific or India or or Sub-Saharan Africa. Idolatry is found wherever people are found. John Calvin insightfully and famously recognized that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Our factory of idols is never idle. It constantly churns out idols faster than we can knock them down. In our culture, we, we like to think of ourselves as, as more civilized, more advanced. We, we don't bow down to carved images like they do in some parts of the world. We don't have shrines in our home, or do we? Many people in our culture have a, a shrine hanging on their wall. And they feel like they can control it because they can change the channel or turn it off with a remote control or a Joy-Con. But it is they who con or con. It is they who are controlled. For others, their idol is a sports team. They spend hours worshiping. And their fan gear, their, their memorabilia would make Demetrius gas. Or maybe your idol is found on your desk or your bank book or your driveway or your gym or your refrigerator. Maybe your idol is sitting on Parliament Hill or maybe you want your idol to sit on Parliament Hill. Maybe your idol is sitting in your pocket right now. Or maybe your idol is how you stay connected with your other idols as you text your idol compulsively and only stop texting your idol when you make plans to meet at the mall. Or maybe your idol is sitting on the pew right next to you. I think you get the point. Anything can be an idol. Now, most of the things that I mentioned here are not wrong in and of themselves. A lot of them are, in fact, good things. They're blessings from God. I said to the kids, blessings from God to be enjoyed. But they become idols when they take their seat on the throne of our hearts. Idols take the place of God in our thought life and how we spend our time and our money. Idols are where we seek pleasure and comfort instead of God. Now, I can't endorse everything that, that Tim Keller has said, but I like his definition of an idol in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He defined an idol as anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything that you seek to give what you only can give, only, seek only what God can give. And so an idol then is essentially anything that takes the place of God in our lives. We all know the first commandment is that you shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 20, verse 3. And if you allow anything to take the place of God in your life, you're robbing God of the glory that is rightfully his. And you're also robbing yourself. You're selling yourself short. You're settling for a cheap imitation instead of almighty God. And here's the thing. The Lord is greater than your idols. The, great is, the Lord is greater than any functional God in your life. The Lord is greater, immeasurably greater, than anything that you can even possibly imagine. In our passage this morning, we're going to see that yet again that the Lord is greater. 
As we continue our study of Acts, we're going to begin to move more quickly now as we get to the final chapters of Acts because most of what is here is narrative and so we'll be able to cover ground more quickly. In this passage, the Apostle Paul doesn't really do or say a lot. As we saw in the introduction to Apollos a couple of weeks ago that the Christianity has spread far beyond Paul and his ministry. We're going to see that there's major opposition to the Lord's work, but again, we're going to see that the Lord is more powerful. We're going to see how the Lord uses even false powers to glorify his name. I have three main points for us this morning. Verses 11 to 20, the Lord is greater than the demons. And verses 21 to 34, the Lord is greater than the gods. And in verses 35 to 41, the Lord is greater than the magistrates. So first of all, the Lord is greater than the demons, verses 11 to 20. Luke has just given a summary of what the Lord has done through Paul in his first two years in Ephesus. And now in verse 11, we're nearing the end of Paul's time in the city. And Luke tells us that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Literally, the text says that God was not doing ordinary miracles. These aren't your normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill miracles. Handkerchiefs, which are essentially sweatbands that would have been worn on the forehead, and work aprons that Paul had had worn during his work, probably his, his, his work as a, as a tent maker, were, were taken from him. Anything that touched his skin was, was taken from him and brought to the sick. And this calls to mind the miracles that were done by Peter, right? In, in Acts 5.15, where the sick were carried into the streets so that even the shadow of Peter might fall on them and that they would be healed. And both sets of miracles, of course, are a reflection of the miracles done by Jesus Christ, especially the woman who, who reached out and touched the hem of Jesus' robe and was healed in Luke 8. What's happening here is, is that through Paul, again, God is healing diseases and exercising demons. And we're seeing this here now in Ephesus. Now, evidently, the, the power of, of the occult w- was prominent in Ephesus. In Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, he makes repeated reference to the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In Ephesians 6.12, he warns the church, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then he adjures them to take up the whole armor of God. The devil is powerful, but God is far more so. And God's power over the forces of darkness is at work in and through the church. In Ephesians 3.10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So again, we are seeing Luke's emphasis on the fact that it is God who was at work through Paul. The miracles here were were not ever meant to be an end unto themselves. Some people focus on the miraculous. They they want these these miraculous things to take place to, to affirm them in their faith. And I'm not denying that miracles can and do take place today, but that is the miracles are never meant to be the focus. The miracles were meant to glorify God. In this context, the miracles were here to attest to the fact that Paul is the authorized 
an empowered messenger of God as a witness for Jesus Christ. This Luke's discussion here, miracles that was that God was doing through Paul, comes immediately after his summary of Paul's ministry in the Word in verses eight to ten. And as we think about this in our context, we do not need the, the 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 miracles as an affirmation of God's messengers because we have the measure that we that we need. We have God's Word, and we measure those who claim to be messengers of God by their adherence to the Word of God. Scripture, the, clan, the closed canon of Scripture, is the measure of a messenger of God. But the Lord's healings and the Lord's exorcisms prompted, we're told, some itinerant Jewish exorcists to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And so they pronounced the words, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Right? There, there are many Jesuses. That was a common name. It's Joshua. There's many Jesuses, but by the Jesus that Paul proclaims, it is by that name that we're going to cast you out, you demon. Now, the use of a, a powerful name was common in exorcism. This is something that quite often was part of the, the formula of an exorcist. And the exorcists here recognized that there was power in Jesus' name, and they weren't wrong. But again, in the epistle to the Ephesians, Paul writes, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, God worked in places when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians 1, 19 to 23. All of that power, all of Christ's power is not bound up in the name of Jesus as though it's some, some uh, magical talisman or some magic formula. The power of Jesus is in who he is. And the power of Jesus is only operating in those who believe in the church. The average person on the street can't just, just claim the name of Jesus and, and think that, that Jesus is now somehow beholden to respond to whatever it is that they're saying. That actually has more in common with the, with the magical incantations we're going to see read about in a few minutes. And so these, they, they weren't wrong and the, the, there's power in the name of Jesus, but they didn't have the power. They had no, they had no power. And so Luke now tells us about the, the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva who, who tried to do this. Now, there are more likely sons not of a, of a, a high priest, but of a, of a chief priest. But nonetheless, they were part of a priestly family. And they were attempting to cast out demons in Jesus' name. But the demon said, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? The demon knew Jesus and trembled. The demon recognized Paul, but did not recognize them. It did not recognize any power in them. It recognized that they had no power or authority, so the demon overpowered them, empowering the man that the demon possessed, casting these would-be exorcists out, naked and wounded. And so it's the exorcists who were exorcised. 
And word about what had taken place spread throughout all Ephesus, including Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And listen to this. The name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. The name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Unbelievers, again, simply invoking the name of the Lord does nothing against the demon. It is only those who work by faith in Jesus' name. Again, not simply pronouncing his name. Nevertheless, even this failed exorcism, even really this reverse exorcism, where the exorcists were cast out in the name of the Lord, is magnified. Just think about what's happening here. What we're seeing is God's omniscience and God's omnipotence on display as he glorifies the name of the Lord even through demonic activity. Right? These demons cast the guys out. The demons had great power, but it's the Lord Jesus who's glorified. Now, Luke here doesn't say that there were conversions stemming directly from this, but there was almost certainly some. And either way, God was glorified, even in unbelievers, even through demonic activity. But unbelievers hearing of the true power of Jesus and standing in, the, in fear is not the only way that God is glorified in this incident. God is also glorified in the response of the church, in the believers. Now look here, it says that, that when, this, when this happened, that those who believed came forward. Now the ESV is, is not really as clear, but, but he's actually speaking about actual believers. These are people, the verb shows that these are people who are already believing in Jesus Christ. They came forward confessing their involvement in the occult. They had been using magic and they repented and revealed that the, that what they had, they revealed the spells that they've been using, so disempowering the spells. Friends, the occult is real. And, and there is an increasing interest in the occult in our culture, at least, at least part, at least in part through movies and books. There is real power at work in magic. But it is stolen power and it is limited power. Think of Pharaoh's magicians in Exodus. They were able to mirror the miracles that were done through Moses to a point. And ironically, most of their magic actually added to the curses in Egypt. Ben Witherington helps, helpfully defines, us, defines magic for us as the attempt through various sorts of rituals and words of power to manipulate some deity or supernatural power into doing the work of the supplicant. And you see what it has in common with, with the word faith movement, of people who are in, in magically invoking the name of Jesus to get Jesus to do what he, what he wants them to do. It, it's, again, it's manipulation. It's a wicked corruption of humbly praying to God to work in his power according to his sovereign will. That's what we do when we come before God in, in prayer. We're coming in the name of Jesus. Again, we don't tack in Jesus' name under our prayers in order to twist God's arm to do what we want it, to make him do what he wanted to do. It's saying that we come as those who are purchased by the blood of Christ. We come not on our own authority or our own righteousness or our or anything. We come simply because of Christ and all that he's accomplished for us. And so we ask you, if it be your will, to, 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 work in, to work in this situation. 
And so here, a number of those who were Christians and had been involved in magic brought their magic scrolls and burned them in the sight of all. And the cost, we're told, was 50,000 pieces of silver. A piece of silver like it refers to a drachma, which is the average wage for a day laborer. This would have been about the equivalent of 160 years of one day labor working six days a week. We're talking millions of dollars. This is no small amount of money. But again, these people were already believers. This is, this is not the, the this is not repentance that's taking place at the time of conversion. This is the continuing fruit of repentance in the life of a true believer. They had somehow hung on to their past practices. But when confronted with the truth of the power of God being far beyond the powers of darkness, they repented and they rejected what they had been involved in. As they matured in Christ, they renounced more sin. Now, while, while occultic practices are an abomination and have no place in the life of a Christian, we really shouldn't be too shocked that the Ephesian Christians continued in sin. Especially a sin that was, was so common in their culture. Think about Romans 7, where Paul says, Wretched man that I am. I don't do what I want to do, but I do what I don't want to do. And he says, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then he launches into Romans 8. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When, when you become a Christian, you don't stop being a sinner. You still, you're still capable of sinning in, in all kinds of ways. Think about David, the man after God's own heart, who committed adultery and murder and then tried to hide it for the better part of a year. But when a Christian is confronted with the word of God and the truths of who God is, the idols of their heart, the, the wickedness of their hearts must fall away. Just think about your life when you first came to faith in Jesus Christ. I trust that when you first believed in Christ and repented of your sin, that there were some, some immediate and some maybe even radical changes in your life. There was certainly, at least spiritually, a 180-degree turnaround. Some, some things massively change in your life. But some of the, the dirt from your earlier life still stuck to you. Right? And you still had to contend with your flesh. And so those things that, that, you, that you continued to battle with, and maybe things, some things that you continue to battle with to this day. Again, we're still sinners. If we had a thousand lifetimes to live, we would still be sinners. And we still would not even come close to comparing to the perfect righteousness that Jesus Christ requires. But these things are, are not the, the root of our salvation. It's the fruit of our salvation. It's the result of the one who has come to faith in Christ. They will continue to walk in repentance and faith. So maybe there, there were areas of, of sin in your life that were more subtle or more insidious, perhaps more ingrained, that hung on for a while and, until the Lord empowered you to leave them behind. And again, for, for some of us, and for all of us, really, there are still some sins, even serious sins, that are still hanging around. 
But what sins did you renounce right away? Think about now when you first came to faith in Christ. What, what sins did you renounce right away? You say, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to follow Jesus. And what sins did you renounce later on? And what sins are you still needing to repent of? Stop and think. Is there anything that the Holy Spirit is convicting you to repent of and to renounce even as you sit here this morning? Now, chances are you don't have any magic books that you need to burn. At least I hope not. For me, a little while after coming to faith, there was a bunch of CDs that, that I had been convicted of for younger people's CDs, is that's how music used to come, in a little disc that you would stick in a machine. It was called a CD. And, and there were some CDs that, that I was convicted of the content of these CDs, and, and I was like, I, I need to get rid of them. And some of them I threw in the garbage, others I actually burned. CDs burn really nice. But the, the blasphemy and the, the immorality they promoted grated on my ears. I didn't enjoy listening to it anymore. Now, I didn't do this again to earn favor with God, let alone to earn my salvation, but it's out of love for God and gratitude for all that he'd done for me in Jesus Christ. Now, people have different views on, on these things about, about what, what needs to go, and the same people have different views at different times. But may our consciences be informed by Scripture. Be careful not to sin against your conscience. Everything that does not come from faith is sin, Romans 14, 23. We, all of us, need to know the devil's tactics, how he tempts us, how he seeks to influence our lives and to, to use us to influence others. So maybe it's what you watch. Maybe it's your friends. Maybe it's what you wear. Maybe it's your words. Maybe it's how you spend your time. We need to be watchful. As Matthew reminded us a few weeks ago from 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So find victory in Christ. He has defeated the devil. He's defeated the devil's schemes. Don't get your theology from a Frank Peretti novel or from the word faith movement. We don't need to see or look for a demon of this and a demon of that. Don't look for a demon under every bush. Even demonic activity is ultimately used by God to glorify God and to sanctify the saints. Now, in, that, in no sense does that make it a good thing. But it shows the power of God and the wisdom of God to use even the height of wickedness to glorify his name. Focus on Christ and focus on the victory that we have in Christ. Look at Luke's summary statement in verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord had power infinitely beyond that of the magic books. The word of the Lord had power infinitely beyond that of the demons. Ephesus was the, in the grips of the occult, but God is greater. God is greater. Now, the Lord is greater than the gods, verses 21 to 34. The Lord is greater than the gods. After this, Luke tells us that Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonian Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must see Rome. Now this verse really shows the, the transition 
in Luke's in Paul's ministry. Very similar to to how we see in 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 the gospel according to Luke, how Jesus turns and sets his face towards Jerusalem. And he spends another year ministering, but it all is pointed towards Jerusalem. The Lord was drawing Paul further west with the gospel to the heart of the Roman Empire. But much like Jesus was setting his face towards Jerusalem in Luke's gospel account, Paul has set his face towards Rome. For, it, for, for Jesus, Jerusalem would mean his death. And for Paul, Rome will mean his death as well. And Acts is going to end with, with Paul en route to Rome on a prison ship. Now, he's not going to be executed in Rome at, at, at that juncture, but it'll be a few short years after that where he is. And Paul, we're told, tells, sends Timothy and Erastus ahead of him while he remained in Ephesus a while longer. He sends them ahead as, as ministers, as, as in a sense deacons, to, to go and prepare the way and, and possibly to procure lodging and, and funding for Paul when he, so the, 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 the area is ready for his arrival. Luke tells us now that about that time there arose no little disturbance among, so no little disturbance concerning the way. But as we'll see, it's not the Christians who are causing the disturbance. This incident that we're about to read about almost certainly is related directly to the failed exorcism and the demon's recognition of the name of Jesus Christ and the Christians in response burning their cultic books. Those who remain unwilling to repent and place their faith in Christ will push back, often with hostility. Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines for Artemis, was such a one. He made replicas, probably not of the, the idol of Artemis, but of the temple of Artemis. And Artemis was, was, such, was so ubiquitously worshipped in the empire that the people come from all over to, to to visit the, the temple of Artemis. And they would purchase shrines of, of various sizes that were, were models of the temple. And then they would go to the temple and consecrate them. And then they would, they would go home with these, with these idols and they would, they would either wear them as amulets or they would set them up in their home as, uh, as, as shrines to Artemis in their home and so trying to procure her favor. The Greek goddess Artemis, was Diana to the, the Romans, was believed to be the sister of Apollos, the daughter of, of Zeus and Leto. She was presented as a virgin and was seen to be over fertility and as the one who would help women in childbirth. She was often presented as a huntress with a bow and arrow, and was so she was seen as the goddess of the hunt. She was also depicted as being over, over, over death. Her temple in Ephesus was four times the size of the Parthenon. It was, was 130 meters by 70 meters. It was surrounded by 20 meter tall columns. Much of it is still standing today. It was the largest building in the world at that time and it is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In the middle of the, the temple of Artemis was the statue of Artemis, notably notably depicted wearing a necklace that had a zodiac that symbolized her authority, her apparent authority over the stars and over events. But as we'll see here, Artemis wasn't in control of anything. And we'll see that her followers are completely out of control. 
Demetrius gathered the artisans of, of similar trades and, and tried to incite them against the Christians. And his speech here is presented as, as disorganized and impassioned. It, it's just a string of charges. And he starts out with what's most important in his mind. He talks about money. Money was his chief motivation. He's saying it was through, this, through making these idols that we had gained our wealth. At least he was honest in this point. He acknowledged again that they made their, their wealth from this. And then he points out that, that Ephesus and almost all of Asia, Paul had turned away a great many people from idolatry, saying that the gods that are made with hands are not gods. He's right. He understood that the danger that, that was that their trade was going to come into disrepute. In fact, the danger was not just that their trade was going to come into disrepute, but that Artemis herself would come into disrepute. That her temple would, become, would come to nothing and that, that, she would, that, that she would be deposed from her magnificence. So then in some, Demetrius argued that their prophet, their trade, their temple, and Artemis herself were all at risk because of Christ. And he was right at every single point. But the other artisans were enraged. They began crying out with a, with a loud voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But the irony is that if, if Artemis is so great, couldn't she protect herself? We see a similar situation in the, the Muslim response to supposed slights against Muhammad. We see this recently in Sweden, how people are, are up in arms and rioting in Sweden because of, of a cartoon that, that was against Muhammad. We have brothers and sisters who are in prison in, in places like Pakistan because of these things. And that they're on death row because of these things. But we recognize that in Christianity, although, although we soundly reject the criticism made against Jesus Christ, we recognize that he is truly sovereign. And so we do not need to resort to fleshly means in order to uphold Christ's honor. You do not achieve spiritual ends through fleshly means. And the result here is that the whole city, that the city who is presented as the, the temple keeper for Artemis, the city is thrown into confusion. A riot ensued. And so the people, the, the, um, the artisans rushed into the, the, to the theater. The theater was an amphitheater. It was a massive. It's still there in Ephesus today. It's, it could seat about 25,000 people. And they couldn't get their hands on Paul, so they dragged Gaius and Aristarchus, two of Paul's traveling companions, along with them. It's probably headed for lynching. But Paul wanted to address the crowd, but concerned for his life, the other disciples wouldn't let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, who were the, the leading men of the province, they were, they, were, um, they were considered to be guardians of the, the, the emperor cult. They're actually Paul's friends. And they sent word to him not to go to the, to the theater. So these were means that God used to protect Paul's life. And God's going to use other means to protect the lives of, of Gaius and Aristarchus, as we'll see in a moment. We recognize that, that, that sometimes that does not happen. Sometimes our, our brothers and sisters, and sometimes possibly even we, will be martyred for our faith if the Lord tarries. But again, Luke highlights the chaos. Some spoke one thing, some spoke another, but most of the people had no idea why they'd even come together. 
And so Alexander, we're told, was, was put forward likely by the Jews to testify that Christianity had nothing to do with the Jews. This was a different religion. And so he motioned with his hand. We didn't get a, get a chance to open his mouth because when the crowd realized that it was a Jew, they, they dragged him down from the platform. And so from the perspective of the crowd, there was, there was no substantive difference between Alexander and Paul. And both of them worshipped one God, but it wasn't Artemis. And that was enough for them to reject him. So now the whole crowd took up the chant, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours. No matter how loudly you chant something or, from, or for how long, it doesn't make it true. It makes me think of, of the pride parades that, that took place last month in, in most major cities in North America. Basically an unruly mob. No matter how much they chanted, it's not true. Now, Christianity had no doubt caused a stir in Ephesus, but it was not they who created the, the chaos. It was the followers of Artemis. Again, they're just an unruly mob. But here we see the Lord using the worship of a pagan deity ultimately to glorify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. As those who worship Christ, as Christians in the worship of Christ, stand in stark contrast, in stark opposition to what is taking place here in this riot. The Lord is greater than Artemis. The Lord is greater than the false gods of those our neighbors worship. The Lord is greater than the false gods that we are tempted to worship as well. Again, sports, entertainment, success, the Lord is greater even than the good things that we have when they become an idol. Now, we may, may all of us be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and may we be empowered by the Holy Spirit to joyfully remove anything in our lives that dishonors God, anything in our lives that gets in the way of the worship of Him. And it might feel like a hard decision. You might hear a voice in your mind, great, great are the Vancouver Canucks. Great is, is my BMW, just to think of a winning car, in my driveway. I'm not saying you have to get rid of your BMW or get rid of the Vancouver Canucks, but is it taking the place of God in your life? Is it something that you use in your life to make yourself feel better? Is it something that you are getting where you're getting something from that, that thing that really should only be trying to get from God. Leave it on the altar. Now God may, as you, as you reorient things in your mind, the Lord may allow you to keep that thing and, and, and to continue to worship God and, and enjoy that thing for the glory of God. But if he doesn't, if he, if he compels you to get rid of it, again, it might be hard, but you will be very thankful. It may, it may seem like a hard decision, but you will not regret it. You will find increased freedom to love and serve God when you let it go. But whatever it is, whatever that thing is, maybe the thing that you're thinking about at this very moment, the Lord is greater. Well, finally and briefly, the Lord is greater than the magistrates, verses 35 to 41. 
In, th- in verse 35, the town clerk arrived. He was the highest civil official in the city, operating much like a powerful city manager. And he, he serves as such, he serves as, the, as the, the liaison between Ephesus and the Roman authorities. And Ephesus, remember, had a, the, been granted the right to, have, to be a free city, and so, but they still were part of the Roman Empire. And in his role, the city, the, the town clerk, had a, he had authority over the crowd. Now, what he says, in, when compared to the speech of Demetrius, his speech is, is, is in proper rhetorical format. He is seeking to persuade the crowd with reasoned argument. But he's wrong in all points, except in the application. Right? Demetrius was, was right on all points, but was wrong in the application. And now we have the town clerk who is, who is wrong on all points, but is right in the application. He says, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis, of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? And so this is, this is really showing here this, this idea that they were the guardians of the temple of Ephesus. This, is, this really shows Luke's really is, is really accurate historical information. Okay, so he's, he really knew exactly what he was talking about. He was, he was a witness of, of many of these things. He was very familiar with many of these things. And speaking here, the sacred stone that fell from the sky, there's, there's no evidence of this in the archaeological record, but, but the, the Romans viewed when, it, when, when something, when a meteor hit the earth, or a meteorite hit the, the earth, and, and there was, uh, there was, they, they would view that as being, as being come from God. This literally here falling from the sky means it's actually, it, it, it fell from Zeus. And so when, the, when this thing came from the sky, they, they would worship it, and then they would incorporate it into their, into their, their, their pagan worship. And so here, there was, there was obviously, there's, there are known to be, be meteorites in, in other temples and other places, but they, there's just no evidence of it, but it was certainly here um, in Ephesus. He says, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. And really, his argument is, is the same one I made earlier. If, if Artemis is really a, god, a goddess, we don't really need to worry about her or her demise. But again, it's, it's the, the if premise. If that's correct, right? If she has power, nothing's going to happen. Because she's under control. Remember, she, they, she had the Zodiac. She was in control of all things. That's what they thought. But if gods and goddesses are, are really powerless, then his argument falls apart. And she is powerless. It's evidence, again, in, in, the, in what happens with the crowd. Her, her worshipers are just all over the place. So he continues, For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers, of our goddess. And the term in the NASB says that they are, they are not robbers of temples. Now, of course, we know that guys in Aristarchus and, and Paul, as Christians, are, are not blasphemers of the one true God. Now, there, there, was, there was no evidence that guys in Aristarchus had, had said anything against Artemis specifically, but you can be certain if Paul was here, he would not have kept his mouth shut. 
he was a blasphemer of, of Artemis. In, in the broad sense of the term blasphemy. He was speaking the truth about Artemis. And so here again, we, we see that, that this, this town clerk is, is wrong. And then he continues again, if, there, if therefore Demetrius or the craftsmen have a complaint against him, let uh, a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, there are proconsuls that bring charges against one another. He's, he's saying here that, that basically there, there's due process. And that this, this mob, this riot was against due process. He says, if you're going to do anything further, it needs to be settled in the, the regular assembly, in the actual properly convened council with formal charges being brought. He says, they're, they're in danger of being charged with rioting since no, there's no cause to be given to justify this commotion. And, and so what he's really saying here is that you guys who are up in arms against, against Paul and his fellow Christians, they're not putting the city in danger. You are putting the city in danger. Because what happens, it, this, this term for rioting, it's, it's tied to sedition. That in, in the Roman governing system, that if, if this, if this uh, mob was, was done not according to, to jurisprudence, then the city of Ephesus could be, could be charged en masse and could actually lose their freedom before Rome. And so the town clerk is saying, you guys are putting yourselves and you're putting me in danger. Stop it. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Again, he's, he's wrong on all the points except for the application. Right? He, he got it all wrong except for how to deal with it. And so again, we see the Lord providentially using a pagan ruler to protect Paul and the rest of the Christians, just like Gallio in Corinth. The Lord is, was using the magistrate to protect the church. This magistrate had got so much wrong, God was still using him to protect the church. Can we see the heart of the king is in the Lord's hands? He turns up like a river of water wherever he wills. We don't need to worry. The Lord may use the governing authority, authorities to protect us. And the Lord may use the governing authorities to persecute us. As we'll see happening soon enough with Paul. But God is sovereign. We don't need to be fearful. Now, surely this does not mean that we're, we're merely passive or, or fatalistic about things. We, we pray to God. We use the means that we have been given to seek to effect change. But we do not need to be afraid, nor do we rely on the governing authorities to protect us. We rely on God to protect us. So here, God uses this town clerk to, to save the lives of Christians. Gallio and Aristarchus. And very possibly many others as well. You can imagine if that mob had had, had their way and they, they got filled with that bloodlust, they would have gone out and searched out other Christians, and many of them would have been killed. But God used this pagan, who was a worshiper of Artemis, to protect the church. There's great comfort in this. And we think about the things that, that, are, that are exalted in our culture. So I think in many cases the government is exalted 
in our culture. Exalted in that we, in some cases, I think we, we, we look at, 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 I don't want to extend this too far, but we look at, at, at the government like some do demons. We, we see an MP under every bush. We see every decision is, is really made ultimately to, to try and, and curtail our freedoms or to, to destroy us. But God is sovereign. And so we need to trust him. You need not to fear. Likewise, we don't need to fear demons. No, we were faced a situation just a couple weeks ago where an individual had, had somebody put something they thought was a, a curse on their, on their door, and this, this person was, was terrified, absolutely terrified. It turned out later to be, a, to be a, a practical joke, not a very good one, a practical joke, but we, we pray for this person, use this as an opportunity to share the gospel with this person. We don't need to fear that. I don't remember the reference, but in Proverbs it says a curse with a cause is like a sparrow in a flitting and a swallow in a flight. A curse that is without cause will not alight, will not land. We don't need to fear. We don't fear the forces of darkness. Now we need to be aware of the forces of darkness, as I said earlier, and, and be watchful. Go back and listen to Matthias' sermon again. We don't need to fear. We don't need to fear the false gods. We don't need to fear false religions. Because we know that all of history is working towards its appointed end. That one day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the appointed time, Jesus Christ will return and that will be the day of judgment. When all wickedness, all of the wickedness of men and all of the wickedness of the demonic forces will be completely and forever eradicated and judged and sentenced into the pit of hell. We must not fear anything except God. We must not trust anything except God either. On that day, our only hope when all will see that truly the Lord is greater. And they know in their heart of hearts, they know. But all will see with their own eyes the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be those who will cry out for the rocks and hills to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. But for those who are trusting in Christ, it will be the, the greatest day of rejoicing. It will be a day that will continue for all eternity as we will we will love and serve God without the flesh will not have any, any sway with us anymore. There'll be no more temptation, no more trials, no more pain. And it's all because of Christ who showed his greatness preeminently in the cross. Again, we're talking about the, the, the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ, but when he was hanging on that cross, he did not look very great. His skin bared. The wounds from the, the, from the whips bearing his flesh. His life's blood pouring out on the ground through those wounds and through the, the nails, through the marks in his nails and, and the nails in his hands and his feet. He did not look very great, but in that moment, he was still Almighty God, still upholding the universe with the word of his power. 
And it was in that moment when the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ was both powerfully exalted as he became the sin bearer, bearing our guilt, bearing the wrath that you and I deserve. As he, in his sovereignty, laid down his life. He said, I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. And on the third day, he took up his life again, victorious over sin and death and hell. He has extinguished the wrath of God in his body for our sake. This is the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one we serve. He is infinitely greater than anything else in this life. May God help us to live lives that reflect a love and worship of the great and glorious Jesus Christ. In a moment, we are going to receive the Lord's Supper. And in this supper, we are picturing, we're depicting what Jesus did for us. It's an opportunity for all of us to, to remember the greatness and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we marvel at who you are. Lord, you're revealed to us in your word. Your glory is evident here in your word. Lord, especially as you became the sin bearer and bore the wrath of God on the cross for our sins. But Lord, one day we are going to behold your glory face to face. We are going to look into the face of the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. And Lord Jesus, we're going to need all eternity to marvel at your glory and your greatness. And even eternity will not be enough for us to behold all of your glory. Lord Jesus, I pray that the power, through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would help us to behold your glory in such a way even now that we would joyfully bow the knee to you and nothing else, no one else. And that we would joyfully get rid of anything that stands in the way of our worship of you. Not to earn any merit with you, because you have granted us your, you've credited us with your righteousness. There's nothing we can add to that. But Lord, as those who have been redeemed by you and saved by you, we pray this in your holy name. Amen.